Great. So let's turn our attention first panel, please, to Alison Shulnick's Eager. That's the title of the film and of the uh, exhibition at Zia Smith Gallery. I also found on Vimeo um, an, an interview with Shulnick about her work, and it began with, hello, my name is um, Alison Shulnick, and I thought, that's maybe some significance in somebody pausing at the beginning of their own name. Um, is there something tentative about this work? Christina, let me start with you. Um, it seems to be a highly accomplished animation and, and quite, quite gripping in many ways. Um, and then we have an exhibition of sculpture and clearly supporting materials um, or ancillary materials or spin-off materials. It's, the, it's, a, it's not an issue that's unique to Shulnick, of course, the relationship when you have um, a film with the, the supporting cast, as it were, of, of uh, traditional mediums that might or might not um, have gone into making the film. But did you feel that this is somebody who's absolutely fully confident in all the mediums she uh, grasps here, or is there some hierarchy? What was, what was your feeling about um, her, her control of her materials? Um, I'm not sure how the mic is. Is that all right? Um, it's interesting that you um, mentioned tentativeness as, as a first sort of quality that comes up. I would see the exact opposite, actually. Um, I'm quite a fan of the work. I had some reservations about this particular exhibition, but uh, if anything, I think the background in animation is quite key in her work. I think the instinct towards um, grabbing something, making it move, giving it life, having it be a character, having it perform, um, I think is, is a very direct gesture and perhaps more direct in some senses than um, someone might have with a background in painting. Um, it's a very tactile and immediate sensibility that I pick up on in her work, which I love. And I, I think um, I like her animations very, very much. I like her paintings more. I was very disappointed there was only one really big um, painting in this show because I do think that the freedom that I see in the animations carries over to the paintings and I think it's quite rare to see painters that have a real freedom of application and a kind of um, again the instinct towards animation leads to very interesting um, situations in the paintings to my mind. Harag, would you say that animation leads, that animates? Is, it, uh, is, is there a hierarchy of uh, materials, or do you think there was a, did the, the exhibition and its installation provide a, a happy meeting of these different expressions? I mean, I have to say, I, I think the animation was certainly my favorite part of the show. Um, you know, I think it's really developed. I think it's interesting. I think it sort of um, helps me understand her painting more, and I do like her painting. I'm not a big fan of her drawings. They're kind of all right. They seem sort of like quick thoughts or something. Um, and her sculptures don't really do anything for me, I have to say. I feel like they, um, they feel a little dead, if that's, if that's the right word. Um, but there's something about them that I don't think delivers what you see when you see an animation by her. And I think the animation in a lot of ways, I mean, I, I sat in there and I kind of got lost in time. It's eight and a half minutes, I think, something like that. And I got lost in time because there's this element that sort of, you know, entrances you. And it's like this, this really beautiful rhythm that she has. And, and even like the fact that she interspersed it with the photographs of flowers. I mean, it's, it's done in a way that you're kind of like, it shouldn't 
you know, I don't know if I would have done it if I, but somehow she makes it really work, you know? Yeah, it's, um, it's a very painterly animation, isn't it, uh, uh, Christian? Which is not a totally unfamiliar thing to us. We have the very draftsmanly Kentridge, and, and in fact, countless sort of animators who, who exploit the, the sense of the painterly. But did, did you feel that, um, did you feel that, it's a, what do you feel is the dynamics between the static works and the film in this show? I want to answer your, your first question. Yeah. Um, yes. I think it's a fantastic show, and I think her, her um, uh, I don't think she's tentative at all. I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Christina. I, I think she's the opposite of tentative. She's, in fact, Baroque, um, which I, I think sits particularly well with me, um, especially after having gone to see one of the shows that uh, we'll talk about later, um, which I find very mannered. In fact, I think a lot of the work that's sort of out there in galleries these days is very mannered, and this comes off very, very differently, very energetic, obviously. Um, I was not familiar with, I mean, I, I, I knew that she made animations. I hadn't had the privilege, and I mean that, um, because I, I thought it was terrific. I think it reads really well, even on this screen, to be perfectly honest with you. The one thing I found lacking was um, I wanted more. I wanted more screen. <laughs> I wanted it to look like Stan Douglas's uh, movie over at Zwerner. I wanted that size. Um, and I think it would have worked really, really well if it had been that size. And that's obviously sort of an issue of resources and not necessarily her resources. But I think the, 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 the movie itself, the animation, what is it, claymation modern dance really is essentially sort of what it is. The scoring was great. Apparently, it took her 13 months, they told me at the gallery, to basically do it. So this is her production for a year, which might resolve the mystery as to why we have so few paintings. Um, <laughs> Of the two paintings that were there, I actually liked the little one better, not without not liking the big one. Um, I thought the little one, which I think was called Porch Pot, was terrific. And it had this sort of, I mean, you know, look, all her work has this super impastoed, elaginous quality to it, right? Um, but it sort of reminded me of stories about Pollux, about the Pollocks that have been sort of conserved recently, where they find sort of flies embedded in her, cigarette butts, because there's an actual fly in the bloody thing, which is great. I mean, it's sort of terrific to, to, to look at that thing and to see how much energy goes into it clearly, because the energy is literally sort of bar relieving out, but then to, to also sort of find these details, accidental details, including the ones that are sort of obviously there. The sculpture, I, I actually like some of the sculpture. Um, I agree that it's not of the same sort of uniform quality. I thought that she has um, a, a black dog head um, on sort of a granite plinth that I thought I, well, I liked. Um, and the one I really liked was one that we saw there, but unfortunately we didn't see exactly the right side. The, I think it was boneless dog, you know, and I guess for no, no other reason, just the, just the yob factor because um, its schlong is literally sort of about the size of its leg. And it's, and it's actually funny to sort of come around it and sort of find that as a, you know, it's a discovery, essentially, while you're sort of looking at the piece. Uh, David, you took the, you took the, uh, the, the nun side of it. Yes. Yeah, I can't see it. Well, uh, we can see, we can see some splay. We yeah, can, yeah, see yeah. Some, right. we can see some right, spatchcock um, on the way. I think, uh, I think it's... Uh, um, that's, that's what I was given. That's In what short, they offered. I thought it was a great, great show. 
Right. Terrific show. Okay. Well, uh, it seems to be, um, uh, despite my sort of improvised provocation, which doesn't really reflect my own view anyway, it seems to be a fairly uh, uniform pleasure. Now, let's, let's not say, oh dear, what a shame, we all love the show, let's go to the next one and hope we hate that. Let's instead actually slow down here and say, okay, we liked it, um, what did we really like about it? And, and if we really liked it, four of us really liked it, um, oh, does it mean something? Is it? Is it? Let's go. Some, let's go a little deeper with it, if we can. Um, the 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 music gave it a real mood to this film, and gave it a little bit of a. It was sort of edgy, and and uh, it was it was a sort of it. It's a, it's a jolly soundtrack, but with a little bit of a tragic element here and there. Yes. Uh, did, what what is the mood really of the film, um, uh, Rag? Um, well, I mean, I, I felt like there was a little bit of, uh, I mean, there were certain things that are sort of prevalent right now in the galleries, and I think there was a little bit of this sort of, it felt a little 70s or something. There was like something about it that felt like a sort of a late modern kind of of that era kind of feel to it. Um, I mean, being Canadian, I felt like it was a little National Film Board of Canada. Like it would be like at the end, there would be like a little logo or yes. something. Um, you know, so there was, there was an element of that. But I will say there was something that did occur to me when I was looking at the show because I had sort of the privilege of having the gallery to myself. And I don't know if I would have liked it so much if it was a crowded gallery. And I, cause I, I've been thinking about that a lot because of the MoMA and like all these other like spaces that are getting more and more crowded. And I felt like a work like this would have lost a lot in a room where you couldn't have a quiet experience. And, you know, and I thought that was really something, I, and I never usually think that, but for somehow this particularly really sort of brought that up for me because of the type of music, because of that mood of this sort of like silence and, the, and this sort of like um, something that felt very delicate. And, I, and in that kind of environment, I think that delicacy um, would just disappear, you know, or dissipate, you know? So that was something that I really noticed in the gallery. Yeah, did you feel, uh, Christina, this was a, just an, an orgiastic celebration of nature, or did you feel there was some sort of uh, foreboding sense of uh, nature in crisis? What did you, did, was, there, was there anything you were picking up uh, in, as far as its attitude towards nature is concerned? Yes, actually, and uh, I like that very much about the, the movie. I, yeah, oddly, those photographs work when they're put in, and I think, you know, there's such a love of color in her work, so simply put. I mean, what a basic thing in a way, but it's, again, I think it's kind of rare that um, she really seems to jump in with, with both feet into whatever she's doing. And I think to jump into something as basic as, you know, the, the singing flower scene from Alice in Wonderland, which I, this is a pretty direct, um, you know, there's a direct relationship, obviously. Um, to, to jump in and to the exact same mood, not even trying to alter it. The, in the original, of course, when the flowers start singing to Alice, um, in the book, they talk, but it's the same mood. It's both wonderfully exciting and a little bit scary. And I think that's carried over, you know, pitch perfectly through the film. And I think also the sadness of, I think it is a contemporary take on nature when there's tremendous anxiety surrounding the natural world right now and the state of it. And I think that she's not um, ignorant of that or, um, you know, setting it aside to think of how pretty flowers are. I think it's, it's much richer than that. Um, if I could just say one thing about your first question about what did we not like about it, I would just wanted to say that I think some of the things that have come up as some negatives, you know, the quality of the sculpture, some of them, uh, I think there, this show suffered from that 
I think what's a bit of a trend now, which is to show paintings and films in, in a way that is supposed to be theatrical and a little precious and to have props and spin-offs. And, you know, the wall painted black with the green strokes on it was fine, but there was nothing evoked by that kind of presentation that wasn't in the paintings itself. So I think it suffered from a, a kind of trendy or designer type installation that, that really didn't do the works any yeah, I've service. Seen, I've seen some very spectacular exhibitions at Zio Smith, the uh, preceding one, in fact, last year of um, a very interesting German painter, um, whose name escapes me for this moment, but where the, the, the artist actually created a wallpaper for the space um, to sumptuous effect. Here, I, th I felt the weakest link in the show was actually the, the installation because the, the, the paintings, and especially the watercolors in themselves, were, were fine. Uh, they were not tremendously important, I don't think, works. I think they were supporting the film. But then, given, as you say, an entire black wall just for one very slight watercolor, I wondered, was this the artist attempting to make installation another layer of the whole experience or, or was this a curatorial intervention in which case i don't think it was such a helpful one um but let's stick though with the film because i think the film we've all we've all agreed is is the major event um i, I say i want to stick with the film but really it it still it still comes it still comes back to me that this is such a painterly film that it is actual clay it is actual paint that is um deployed as the the material that's then transmogrified in in the film and the film then sends us back to does the film sort of send us back to try to reanimate the other objects in the show that's that's i think a legitimate question christian would you do you, do you feel that the film is equipping us to try to reanimate what we see in her painting well, you know, I think she she imagined that the uh, the entire show was of a piece. Um, you know, you guys mentioned that they're supporting characters, which invariably means that they're star characters. Um, and I think obviously the film is one of them, and then the two paintings, and maybe the sculptures are tertiary, and then sort of whatever the atmospherics are come after that. I. I give her props for essentially gilding the lily. I mean, I think that's what the entire sort of work is supposed to be about. You know, from the movie on to the to the supporting stuff that we may find slightly weaker or weak. Um, uh, you know, and, and I think that's, you know, really what her project is sort of largely about. The film, it, like the sculptures and the... Um, uh, and the paintings is, you know, is it's blood and guts. Again, it's sort of like back to Baroque. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, I, I find that uh, it, the difference, if we remember our art history between Mannerism and Baroque, is that one is essentially sort of uh, basing itself on previous style, and the other one is sort of confronting nature a bit more directly. And I think that distinction is a distinction that might work if we think about her work maybe versus um, uh, someone else that we're going to look at. Yeah, well, when we get to look Boy, at it, well... Boy, I'm making it out to be a big mystery, aren't I? The, yeah. <laughs> jump in. There yeah. was something about the work that I thought was really interesting was... I, I thought this would actually even work on television. I mean, like, there was something about it that felt, like, popular, but at the same time had, like, a very, like, strong aesthetic and have sort of developed as an artwork. But it was really... I mean, I, I would watch that on Adult Swim, you know? <laughs> Uh, you know, like, I think it would actually really work well. But I think you're onto something, because d direct relationships to nature don't tend to sort of be, they don't 
they don't function very well in the, in, in the art box. There's a, there's a direct appeal, there's a direct relationship to a viewer that if mediated by the art box, it does certain things, but it doesn't need it, you know? Um, but does the film, so does the film have, uh, does the film portend a, a deeper spiritual meaning uh, of some sort for you, Christian? Or is it just a, is it just a fun, nice experience? Well, I mean, I think any sort of honest, and I think this is, engagement with nature, or even culture for that matter, um, uh, uh, is, you know, should, is intended to be sincere. This is, certainly. Um, uh, so I don't know if, if I can sort of uh, parboil something, you know, down for you in terms of a, an actual sort of line, but because I don't think it's there. I think it's too multivalent for that. Um, but but there's there's clearly sort of a connection to again back to I don't want to repeat myself endlessly but back to back to a more primary relationship say with a subject matter than you know maybe other work that's out there. Yes. Yes, please. I really um, liked what you said, and I like the fact that you used the term blood and guts in relation to this because one thing that I think um, I think the reason I'm drawn to her work in part is the. Uh, implication it has for figurative painting and figurative work right now. I think she's very much an artist working from, you know, the inside out. Uh, again, maybe what you're saying in terms of a, a kind of um, sincere, direct engagement with nature and with the body. And I think, I thought those little figures she had choreographed were fabulous. I'm not always sure about all of her um, central figure choices. I mean, a sad clown is, is questionable, I think. But I do think that she's really working with how do you think about the body and how do you think about characters and people and, and living things, doing things in paintings. And I don't think we see enough of that. So I think she represents some, some nice possibilities for figurative painting. Yeah, I must say when I first when I saw the film from the beginning, um, I was... Uh, um, I was I was discombobulated slightly. I, I thought, well, is this are, are they actual dancers there? Uh, and it had to I had to watch it a couple of times to to really get that it actually was merely clay. Um, that it was so uh, it was it felt more like uh, dancers imitating clay than it felt like um, clay simulating uh, dancing figures. So. I just feel as a as a tech, it's 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 technically a, a tour de force, and it just has a kind of good vibe to it, a kind of a joy to it. I mean, it's um, that's something that's much that's something that's particularly rare, I think, in contemporary art is is a sort of Alexander Calder like whimsy and good natured good humour and and um, taking a sort of pleasure in in the elasticities of material. So. I think uh, I think we can give uh, four thumbs up to. Uh, can I just say one last thing? Yeah. Because how boring would it would it have been really if it wound up being sort of about you know climate change? Um, you know, <laughs> and I totally agree with you that essentially, the, the the joy, the pleasure, the evident pleasure that's there both I think in the paintings and particularly in the video, um, is really kind of ultimately what it's about. And and you uh, know for me it was terrific to it was so terrific to go. I was really sorry I didn't go last week, so that I wrote about it. Um, well, that's that's a, a high praise. That's um, better than a, that's a line in one's resume. Excellent. Hi, good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to the National Academy. I'm Marshall Price. I'm the curator of modern and contemporary art here, um, and uh, I'm sad to say this is going to be the last review panel that I'm introducing because I'm moving on uh, in a couple weeks to another position. 
um, at the National Museum at Duke University. So um, I've been here for the beginning of the review panel uh, 10 years now almost, and I'm sad to uh, be leaving on some level, but, um, but I'm very pleased to have been here for as long as I have and get to know David, uh, our uh, the review panel originator and moderator. Um, so David, thank you. I think the thanks are to you, uh, uh, Marshall, for really bringing the contemporary spirit to this venerable ancient institution. And uh, it's a big, big loss for New York City, but uh, um, a, a major gain for North Carolina. Just don't forget to register to vote. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's really wonderful to see so many people out on such a cold night. Thank you for braving the elements. Um, we would like to thank uh, New York State Council on the Arts and um, the Department of Cultural Affairs for helping to uh, support the ongoing programs here at the Academy. And I would encourage you to try not to miss the final days of See It Loud, uh, the current exhibition that's on view. Uh, Sunday is the last day, so I hope that you'll come and see it if you haven't. It's a wonderful exhibition of um, overlooked and uh, underrepresented uh, painting. Uh, from the 60s and 70s uh, to today. So please come and see that if you can. And now, um, for the last time, at least my last time, I'd like to introduce the um, moderator of the review panel, David Cohen, who is um, also the editor and publisher of the online magazine, artcritical.com. So with that, I'm gonna hand it over to David, who will introduce tonight's panelists. David. Thank you very much indeed. And allow me shamelessly to extend my own gracious, uh, Marshall's gracious introduction and uh, say of myself also that I'm the curator of an exhibition currently showing at Zorsha's studio, Come Like Shadows, for which a panel has been organized taking place uh, pre-Super Bowl on February the 2nd, co-moderated uh, with Thomas Noskowski uh, on the subject of, uh, the title is Fixities, Fixation, uh, fixes, fixities, and fixations on moving moments and um, screen icons with four of the artists in the exhibition, um, Angela Dufresne, uh, Ina Swansea, Dawn Clements, and Duncan Hanna. Details to be posted at Art Critical. Um, it's my, going to be my pleasure in a moment to introduce this evening's panelists. Um, tell me, uh, who, who is here at the review panel for the first time? Anybody? Ah, marvelous, fantastic. Well, it's always lovely to see some new faces amidst uh, returnees as well. For your sake, and just to remind others of the format, it's simplicity itself. We've all been to see four exhibitions, uh, those up there. Many of you will have been to see them too, because they're posted ahead of the event. And we will show brief PowerPoints of the exhibitions. We'll show two, discuss two, hear from the audience about two, repeat the exercise, and then brave the cold night air afterwards. So that is the review panel, which is then ably recorded for us by Isaac Durfel, thanks to him. And it's then posted and podcast at artcritical.com, where you can hear the whole series with one or two sad omissions, but well over 
50 uh, review panels, almost 60, I think, um, at artcritical.com, going right back to the first and feisty event with Ken Johnson, Jerry Saltz, and Maureen Mullarkey. So, this evening's guests from my far left are two returnees and one uh, neophyte. We have Christian Vivro's phone, who's art critic of Village Voice, Christina Key, a painter based in Brooklyn and an art writer. She writes for artcritical.com, among others, and Rag Vartanian, who is the founder and editor of hyperallergic.com, the only serious rival to artcritical.com in town. <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen, please welcome a distinguished panel. Well, let's move our attention to an artist who might be the antidote then to this, uh, hu this overwrought, huge, quote unquote, mannerist. Um, is this the Brock to that mannerism? Is this back to, the, back to roots, back to some, some nature, perhaps? Um, uh, Christina, what did you make of uh, Laurie Ellison? Um, I must say the show presented me with a little bit of a problem, or problems on, on various levels. Um, I was attracted to the, the modest scale of the works and the a kind of instinct I was seeing in them. Um, I thought, I didn't know the artist, uh, and, and so I just saw the works as they were, and I assumed they were sort of a young Bushwick artist doing kind of what you might call a kind of easy abstraction. That's what I thought I was seeing at first, just by, by seeing the works. And I was a little biased against the doodles, I have to say, or the doodle references. Um, it seemed to me that there was an aim towards a meditative quality or um, you know, a kind of air, field of concentration built up through repetition in these works, when in fact a doodle is, of course, a sign of um, of lack of attention. Um, and I, I've never been a fan of doodles. I mean, it sounds weird maybe as an, as an artist, but it's a lack of attention towards what's going on. And they tend to also be a lack of attention to what's going on in the hand. It's very hard to sustain the quality of line that in, in a doodle. Um, James Sienna might be able to pull that off, but I didn't feel the kind of interest or tension in these works that I wanted to. That being said, I definitely spent more time with them. and. Uh, it was, this was one of those occasions where reading around the works um, ended up being very fruitful. Um, I've, I hope it's okay to say I was very moved by a lot of the, um, the writing surrounding the works and, and what people had seen into them. And so I, it caused me to revisit them. And I think they have great qualities. Um, when, I, when I went back, I was also led to the, um, an essay by Mira Shore about you know, modest painting, mm. um, saying a lot of ideas we might be familiar with, um, that there's, there always needs to be space for people who are trying to capture the, maybe not the grandiose, but the small and the, and the straightforward, that there's room for that. Um, and, and so I think I, it led me on a very interesting kind of trek through this and it became clear that this artist and her ethic and her way of working um, uh, represent something very valuable to a lot of people and I'm a, I'm a big believer that it's not always the works themselves but it's the effort the of values, making the, the values. values yeah yeah and so it was an interesting um, situation for me this great this great well I'd, I'd actually suggest that uh, within your critique your, your the beginning the, the the first part of your critique is act, are actually the ingredients for an appreciation, and that, that often the best critiques do that. Um, and that's, that's why artists, 
that's why good intelligent artists like to hear intelligent critiques because often the the critiquer puts forward those ingredients because what you're kind of saying is they are uh, provisional tantric and um, I, I think that's actually totally their intention. I think um, she, she's, she's within her private space, both, both the intimacy of the space where they're made, but the, the intensity of the space of the, the, the small page. They, they, they have that, uh, that's a reconciling the mystical with the doodle, the, the, uh, the sort of the tentative, unfinished quality with, with something sort of, some sort of insight. Um, would you go along with that, Harag? Yeah, I mean, uh, the thing about Laurie's work I, I really love is when her, when she doesn't let your eye rest, uh, you know, and and she sort of has these different um, uh, this this different tension that goes on. I'm not as big of a fan of the ones that have clear focal points. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that sometimes is a little, it, I think it, sh it, it shows a little bit of the cracks in the pieces sometimes. Um, but I think a lot of her work is related to the page and into like books or, you know, like they're all these sort of like small formats, almost the size of a book. So I think there's kind of, I think there is a, um, an element of, of of that and that intimacy and and all those all those issues. The in the past, whenever I've seen Laurie's work, often if anything, the installation suffers sometimes from issues of scale with other works. So I'm always glad to see her work alone, mm -hmm. because I feel like often she's placed beside a lot of larger work, and it sort of loses a little bit because it, it it has trouble competing with other work around it. And I think that's where it's like, you know, you're stuck in a book and you're sort of in that little world and you need to be like in her world to kind of get that. And what about when her own work is placed um, in, in conjunction with, with, it, with each other? When, for instance, in fact, a funny thing happened when we were looking at the PowerPoint that I realized we were creating an animation of uh, Laurie Ellison mm -hmm. when we had the color variants of the same mm -hmm. format. Um, uh, um, is that a problem or does that work? I mean, I think it works. Uh, I mean, I, I would like to see her work outside of a white box more. I, I have to say, like, I don't necessarily think her work is as well suited to a white box as other artists, you know, and I, and I wish that was um, something she would explore more um, because I, I, you know, I mean, I almost feel like it would be a great book you know, like if she were to print a book of her images, I think it would be gorgeous, you know. But in the white box, the scale, particularly, I mean, I, at least at McKenzie, the, the ceiling is fairly low, so it doesn't feel like they're lost. Um, so I thought it was actually one of the best installations of her work I've ever seen. Um, but it's but scale is a, is an issue for me. Looking at something on a wall. Right. It wouldn't work at Petzl, I think you're saying. Right. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Um, Christian, is this the Baroque antidote to the uh, mannerism of Guyton? Um, no, but I think it sort of stands on its own. Um, you know, this is probably the work that's farthest from my general interest of all the shows that we saw. But, um, you know, but clearly there's more than a little something going on here. They're sort of very meditative. Obviously, someone mentioned the word doodle, and that's sort of a of, of principle. Um, interest here. Um, I'm trying to remember the line without looking down at the paper, but I think I'll have to. Um, but Raphael Rubinstein's description, um, hypnotic geometry, um, which makes sense, particularly for me, since um, I think I've seen a lot of 
a, a lot of uh, her cohort showing in, in Brooklyn early on. Um, you know, mentioned the, the obvious sort of point of reference is Sienna, who I, who I think manages to, to make every single, I mean, at least for me, make every single picture count, every single picture for me of Sienna's, not every single one, but most of them um, tend to have a certain kind of push and pull um, that is, uh, is, you know, often sort of, tr you know, tremendously dynamic, you know, really urgent um, uh, with, um, with, with Lori, some, not so much. Yeah, um, uh, the relationship to the to drawing is, you know, pretty obvious in, in large part because the drawings are there for you to sort of make that relationship um, uh, visible. Um, but um, yeah, you know, I, I, I probably was more a fan of the works. I, I, uh, the, the color wheel works left me slightly less satisfied or frack significantly less satisfied than the than the than the works that that again had that push and pull and that sort of had sort of a more dynamic relationship uh, the figures to each other um, the the entire figures to the to the painting in general the scale is obviously important um, seeing something that intimate is a relief uh, after seeing something like Guyton I wish I had done it in that order um, and I didn't um, yeah, I, I feel that um, uh, James Sienna is, I think, sort of the elephant in the room with any discussion on Ellison, so I think it's, it's perfectly appropriate that you've brought him up. Um, it, it makes you appreciate, I, I like Ellison's work uh, a lot, uh, but it certainly makes you appreciate that with Ellison, her size and her scale are in complete um, harmony, as it were, and whereas with, with Sienna, he, he works on that small size and invests a tremendous scale. They, I mean, you could take a James Sienna and put it on one of the walls at Petzl, and from about six, six feet, it would totally hold it. He has that magic density and luster, a bit like, I would say, Elizabeth Payton in Figuration, where countless imitators, it just dissipates. But with Laurie, um, yeah, she's not, she's not, James Sienna, she's Laurie Ellison, and that's, that's cool, that's okay. Um, she's the other extreme, I mean, somebody like Stephen Westfall is playing with a very similar vocabulary often, and he uses size. Um, there's, there's almost no scale in, in, in uh, um, a Westfall, but the size floods one's uh, vision. And, and so putting those two observations together in relation to Ellison, I'd say, Harag has got it totally, he's on the money. Well, she, needs to, she needs to get away from um, pictures and, and somehow, it seemed to me that they were sort of crying out to be carved in some way. I think she has the most amazing, exquisite touch. And, and, and she actually almost takes color and uses color to carve a space into the surface, whether it's paper or um, her, her painted works, and so that makes me think, wow, considering the labor that's gone into this, and that's the, the, there is a kind of psychotic outsidery nuttiness to the, to the labor intensity Obsessive of these works. Obsessive-compulsive, yeah. Yes, yes, I'd say, okay, get yourself a chisel and uh, make woodcuts of these same images because they almost have a woodcut quality to it, and then you could make, you know, six or eight or ten of each, and that would, you know, 
help as, the world? As, as far out as your recommendation is, I think you may be on something. There, there was one piece in particular that sort of called me back a couple of times, where essentially the drawing was made by negative space. She basically filled in the red so much with ink, basically just doing nothing but doodling, that the line was basically described almost as a bas-relief, yeah? And that was a great piece. In fact, I think now that I'm thinking about it, that was probably the piece of the show. Um, so, good point. Yes, please, Christina. Um, something that um, I do I want to highlight, because I, I don't think she's James Sien in the sense that I don't think she's trying to do the same project. And I think that's a, an important distinction to make. Um, one thing that I do think is interesting is um, some of the, they do, I mean, there are motifs, there are specific motifs being used, and I think those can be quite important. Um, you know, the triangles that reminded, like, dragon claws or scales, those can be very, very evocative. There's architectural forms that begin to pulsate and move, and I, I had, that was one of my favorite works, it looked like a kind of top of the Chrysler building or something, that, that kind of motif. And I do think something interesting happens when She's drawing something that might be, you know, cells or something organic, and then the sense of them either taking over or building their own architecture. I mean, pattern is an incredibly rich field, and I do think she's engaging with some of the really interesting aspects of pattern. Um, you know, when I took some time with them, um, you know, sometimes the, the motifs themselves being used had, you know, quite interesting and specific um, evocative powers, and I thought those were quite interesting. Some of them are really intense. Some not so much. Some, fa some are like fabric swatches, but some of them are terrific. Right. Well, I think, with, I, think, I think if I were her, I'd be pleased to have had those four responses to her work. So let's, uh, let's hear from the audience. Let's hear this spirited, intellectually um, putting us all to shame uh, defense of Wade Guyton. Um, or let's hear some, some, some more uh, insights into Laurie Ellison. Uh, we won't won't separate them, just whatever comes to your mind, or a connection you can find between the two. Can we ask if anybody likes Wade Guyton? Yes, in put the your room? hand up if you... Like Wade Guyton? <laughs> yes. We won't throw anything at you. Ah, there we are. Yes. See? Good, good. I knew it. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> right. come over okay. There. The fifth wheel. Let's, uh, yes. Do you, do you want to say something about Guyton? Uh, we, we, we will let you have a second say, because that was part one, and this is part two. Use, use the mic. I guess I'm just concerned that the main reaction to Guyton from all of you is connoisseurial, um, and I just don't know if that's the right way of thinking about him. You're all talking about, you know, you're dissatisfied with what he's presented to your eyes, etc. It seems to me that you have to think about him in Duchampian terms, in terms of uh, appropriation, um, that to imagine that the goal of Guyton is to give you eye candy of any kind seems a mistake, except that he's playing with that notion. If he defeats the notion, then he's, he's succeeding, it seems to me. I'm not a huge defender, and, uh, but I think there are things to say about him that, that weren't said tonight. I think that, in a sense, you may be missing the point. If, what you go, if you go into a Guyton show thinking that you're going to get kind of traditional connoisseurial optical pleasure, then, then there's a problem. If, if you can defend him, it's got to be on an anti-retinal basis, it seems to me. I think it's pretty thin conceptually, but not totally thin. And certainly if he, I think his defeating your desire for pleasure is part of the point. Um, so that's, it seems to me that in a sense you've played into his hand, you've proven his point by, by being frustrated by him. Yeah, but with respect, Blake, we, we all actually explored that, exactly those positions, I think. I mean, I, I think we all said, you know, is this conceptual, is this minimal? We all said, you know, is this a game about art? Da, 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 da. I think we all got it, just, you know, 
Richard Prince did it awfully better a long time ago. So I mean, I think Sherry Levine's probably a better example, where a connoisseurial approach to Sherry Levine seems just wrongheaded. There seems, seems to me that this is closer to Reinhardt put through uh, an Epson printer than, than anything else, and that seems to be, to the extent that it has force, it's about that. It's about uh, making fun of the, the spiritual pretensions of modernism by making it automatic, by turning these things out automatically to any scale you want, by letting a printer make all of its decisions. Well, actually, Roxy you know. Payne did that very much better yeah. than he well, did there's, a long time Well, ago. maybe Roxy has two, or the objects are too visually interesting. I mean, if Guyton can be defended, it's for absolutely defeating your, your desire for visual interest, which Sherry Levine sometimes does too, right? Yes. Um, it's not a spirit of defense, but it's some kind of a defense. It's the best <laughs> I can do, I'm afraid. All right, okay. Seems like a lot of space to, to say nothing. But anyway, yes. <laughs> this is about Laurie Ellison. I just wanted to say that I... Um, I couldn't quite understand why, but I loved much better her work on the note paper, and, uh, and it almost felt like um, she related like to manuscripts, you know, illuminated manuscripts. And, um, and I felt that when she painted, it didn't quite have the same effect, you know, like she was wasting her time of the real things she does. Like it's more related to stitching or to some you know, my, my, my problem with, and my, my problem with uh, Guyton wasn't connoisseurial at all. My problem is, is that it's fourth, fifth, sixth rate postmodernism. That's my problem. Derived off of, I mean, look, I'm just tired of everyone pretending that Andy Warhol was the last reference, you know, that there's nothing beyond, and there's nothing before him. And that, and, you know, it just, it, it doesn't make for, There, it, it doesn't make for very fulsome work. Obviously, in this case, it's not supposed to be visually, but but even the even the trope is empty. You know, that's my that's my issue. Thank you. Uh, it's actually my my first time here, so it's, it's a great panel. Congratulations. Uh, maybe it's uh, it's it's my ignorance speaking, but is it me? But Ellison's work, it's for me, is like, where's, where's the work going to go forward? Like, it seems very simple and doodling. I'm just saying, at like a very high level, like, where is it going to go in two, three, five years? Is the work going to look kind of the same with different colors, different motives? And motive? It's just me. I'd like to have your perspective on this. Okay, first, I mean, that, I think in a way that's, that's a two part question. Number one, uh, where can this work go? And number two, is that important? I mean, in other words, we could ask, we could answer your question both in terms of, uh, we could take your question on face value and say, we think her work's going to go here, or we don't think her work can go anywhere, and that's a problem. Or we can say, we might want to say, it's here, we're here, we're looking at it, and, and we're in the moment. Um, but Christina, do you, do you what, what's your response? I'm, I'm intrigued by that question, actually, because I think that's part and parcel of the idea of modest painting, in a way, or certain types of painting that really sort of begin with an end with a, a, either a simplicity of application. Even though it's very ornate, it's kind of a straightforward approach she's using. Um, so I was actually thinking similar things. But I do think that at their best, these drawings, um, 
uh, and the writing really attested to this, so that interested me, um, that they stand for states of mind and states of consciousness of the artist. And I think what the aim of the simplicity of the application is really to capture that as immediately as possible. So in terms of change, the, if it works, if, if she's, you know, if it keeps going, then the changes will be absolutely um, parallel or attached to or hitched to her changing states as a human being. And that's good art. I mean, if that really happens over an artist's life, then I think that's pretty wonderful. So I think that's the kind of project that's, that's en route there. Um, to, as to what it would look like, I'm not sure. But I do think there's an interesting element to your question. And she's a mid-career artist. She's not a young artist. So she's been basically doing this sort of involuted work. I like the, word, the use of the word parallel in terms of where she might move. Um, yeah, she's been at this for a while, and I think she'll continue to do very similar kinds of work. Yeah, unless David can, con can convince her to basically sort of take up a chisel and a hammer. At the risk of opening up a whole different can of worms, I was wondering what you would think about if someone had told you that Laurie Ellison was an outsider artist and that this work was done in a mental asylum 20 years ago. And, you know, there's something about the sincerity of it that puts into sharp relief the problematizing of Wade Guyton's work, which I, you know, share your reaction about Wade Guyton's work, but the thing that kind of makes it art is this problematic relationship to us as viewers and stuff like that, whereas everybody is sort of more than relieved to kind of see something that's, you know, a product of this sincere, focused activity, and I was just sort of wondering how you see any of those things in relationship to each other. Uh, I think that, I think it's a very, very, well, I, I think it's a very good question, but perhaps others do too. Rag, anyone? Go ahead. Who wants to? <laughs> um, I, I think, well, first of all, they were made in a lunatic asylum. They're made in New York City. So this is the, <laughs> as, as, uh, as somebody said about Vienna, it's a lunatic asylum where you're allowed to scream or something like that. But um, uh, a padded cell where you're allowed to scream. Um, yeah. Um, it, it's almost as if we orchestrated to put those two shows together to be um, a caricature of each other's extreme opposite, isn't it? Because, yeah, the 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 um, the Guyton is so much uh, uh, a deconstruction, a critique of any possibility of authenticity, and the Ellison is so kind of intensely um, earnest. earnest. It is earnest art. It's it it really its hearts on its sleeve. This is this is who I am. This is where I am. This is my um, deep unconscious. This is and, and and I think in a way, it's something I'm writing about at the moment. Uh, I think the notion of outsider art is probably about as redundant as any in currency. And somebody like Ellison, I think, sort of shows why because. Um, either she is an outsider artist, but with lots of Facebook friends and lots of art world friends and living in New York, or she's uh, a New York artist who shows that a New York artist can do outsider art just as well as James Castle. Well, not perhaps just as well as James Castle, but can do outsider art. Um, you don't have to be 
deaf and dumb and living in Idaho you, to make outsider art. You could be living in New York and represented by a nice gallery on the Lower East Side and make outsider art. So goodbye outsider art, let's just look at the art. That's, I think, where one would go with that. And I think that's what one wants to do anyway with James Castle, just look at the art. I don't think it looks like outsider art at all. It, you know, it's the, the whole format is just too clean to begin with and too purposeful. Um, but I see where you're going in terms of sort of what's inside that, those little boxes, yeah. Um, and I th also think it's a very good question. And, you know, to, to query sort of the, the potential, the obvious oppositionality between someone like Guyton, um, who I insist we make too much of uh, thinking, we tend to, we continue to have this knee-jerk reaction that he's actually criticizing something I really don't believe he is. Um, uh, it's the same as sort of taking Damien Hurst at his word that he's also criticizing the, the, uh, the art market by manipulating it. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, um, uh, Ellison's work is, is clearly of a very different kind of, it, it's, a, it's a very different um, stripe of, of, of art, literally. Um, and um, and it, it's very sincere. And, and I think that is, to a certain degree, refreshing. It's likely never to be sort of foisted onto the art world as the newest thing, um, at least not in this variety. Um, uh, and that's probably OK. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably all I have to say. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't know whether it's outsider art, but I could see like an affiliation with folk art, you know, in a, in a different kind of way. Like it's almost like if somebody was creating needlepoint professionally and then decided to start drawing, I imagine they kind of would look like that or something. You know, there was, there was this kind of pattern to it where someone's sort of out of their comfort zone but still creating something that's sort of interesting. And uh, yeah, about the Wade Guyton, I mean, I'm just gonna jump in again and say, yeah. Um, it just, kick. yeah, another kick. I mean, just, you know, it's, it's uh, th there's a lot of energy placed on this idea of critique in the art world. And I think in this case, it's, there's just way too much backstory to get the critique, you know? And it's just at that point, it just, it just runs dry in my book. Because if you really need to know all those things about the work, um, you know, it, you know that's, that to me is, is not that interesting. Yeah, I mean, the critique at this stage should be of the critique rather than of the perennial target of the critique, which is retinal pleasure or, uh, okay, yeah, okay, we got it, thanks. You know, let's have a critique of Richard Prince. Let's have a, you know, rather than... We got the memo a while ago, right? Yeah, I think we did. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, see you all in March. Bye. Thank you very much. Have a nice time. Let's move on, and Christian, I'm going to start with you, because I think you're the one who can probably fill us in best. Can you just describe to us um, with Thomas, yes, with Thomas, let's actually get the battleship up there. Just, if you would, without, uh, without offering a critique or a, um, a defense, if you could just describe to us some of the, the background, the intentions, what is this show about? Um, I think it's sort of about problematizing photography, even though I'm not sure he would necessarily even put it that way. 
all the all the all the photographs are very large format, um, which you know isn't clear from the JPEGs or or, or from that, um, and they. Uh, they require quite a bit of manipulation uh, and at different stages or some at one stage and some at another. Um, there are a couple of pictures that are really about sort of taking day for night kind of situations. Um, old sort of film term where, you know, you basically sort of photograph or you film something in the daytime and then you basically go back and either do post-studio um, mucking around and make it look like night, or you, you do it in a film where essentially sort of it, it, it looks that way, tungsten or something else. Um, <clears throat> some of those are quite impressive because the level of detail that you get from those night images, you know, is, like I said, pretty impressive. Or uh, you get very prolonged exposures, um, sometimes several days of exposure, if I remember this correctly. Um, or you get, uh, a lot of, as it were, post-production, which this picture, apparently, not, not apparently, it, it has tons of, though it doesn't look like it to the naked eye. I can explain more, but maybe I'm going over. Should I explain what the exact sort of like? You, yes, give us okay, an intimation yeah. of it. Right, so he made up this project about um, camouflage which used to basically protect ships during World War II and after from being torpedoed in ICs, right? Um, and, you know, so the people, including a couple of board assists, apparently were uh, brought, brought in to the uh, British Royal Navy to uh, design, um, design designs that would freak out whatever the, the German uh, um, U-2 boats <coughs> that were out there trying to sink them. Um, and you know they came up with these designs. Apparently, that design doesn't exist anymore. He went out. He went out after uh, look, uh, looking for those designs or looking for boats that where they uh, existed. They no longer exist. So he found a boat that would have been one of those commissioned with camouflage. Um, I think, if I remember correctly, this is in, in, in Lake Michigan somewhere, um, and basically uh, in, in post-production applied the camouflage to it. Um, he also sort of applied a different um, mountain uh, range to it in the back. The thing that looks like a shore in the front really isn't a shore. Essentially, it, it's, you know, it'd be kind of cheap to say it's Photoshop, except for when you actually look at the thing, it gives no evidence of the stitching that you would imagine that Photoshop sort of gives you, right? Um, you know, I think my tendency is to come at, uh, at photography that's digitally manipulated and imagine that I'm going to be able to see right away where the stitching is, you know. And in this case, it, you just don't see it. And that's fairly remarkable. It's remarkable. It's, it's interesting that we're looking at a second exhibition now, one following on the heels of the other, where we are marveling and seem to be enjoying the, the, the tours de force. Uh, and yet, um, uh, what's, what's getting lost here, and uh, whether you call it mannerism or Baroque, is, uh, is, a, is an interesting distinction. But we're losing, aren't we, some sense of truth to materials? I mean, both artists are um, pulling off a sort of spectac spectacle for us. They're, they're, they're um, uh, playfully kind of tricking the eye uh, and delighting us in the process, it, it would seem. But um, isn't Maybe it's, am I the only Puritan here who, who sometimes yearns for art where the actual material process is, is very evident and um, um, sort of 
maybe more honest, uh, uh, Rog? Well, I mean, it, uh, what was it, a few years ago, um, I was doing some research on Thomas, and I have to say, I really enjoyed the show up front. Yes. Like, I actually, I'd have, I'm going to show my hand and say out of the four shows, I think it was the strongest as a, as a unified show. Um, it, but he, he, he showed with uh, Jeff Wall, and I think that kind of gives you a sense of the, what we're dealing with here in this terms of a staged scene um, that's supposed to get at a deeper truth. Um, and I mean, I think it's pretty clear that something is staged in the photographs, even when you don't realize how manipulated they are, um, because I think some of them, especially the night scenes, have m multiple exposures. So there, there are these things that go on. So you can kind of tell because the light's not quite there, and there's like, and, um, and I think that's actually something else with Allison's show that I never brought up, was the fact that there's something about the light in her work that I can't put my finger on, but doesn't feel natural. Um, and I think this show has a similar ethereal quality about it, where the light seems off. Um, and it's either things are sort of uh, too bright or too dark or, um, you know, where there's a funny relationship where things flatten out a little bit in some places. Um, so, I mean, I don't mind an image being manipulated, uh, you know. In this case, I think that staged feeling comes out. Um, I think it obviously would be a problem if he was saying they weren't manipulated, um, you know, but I, I think that's actually part of the sort of the surprise. And I have to say the display in the, the, the big gallery um, at Mark Strauss with the light uh, walking in was, I think, you know, as good as it kind of gets when you're walking to a gallery and you see those big photographs. I mean, I think it was really beautiful um, right. with the light. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Christina, I... Um, are you troubled by the, uh, it seems to me, the, the, the heavily staged quality? And mentioning Jeff Wall is, is right on target. The, the artists who came to my mind was um, uh, Gregory Crudson. These, these uh, Gregory Crudson, but without the action. They seem to be, uh, to me, uh, very uh, heavily orchestrated uh, experiences. Um, um, orchestrated, but without uh, a finale to me. Um, did, did, did you get uh, the same kind of um, positive uh, feedback from these as, as, as uh, Harag and Christian? Yes, yeah, very much. And I wasn't familiar with this artist's work, so it was a wonderful surprise, this show. I agree, I think out of all four, it was you know, probably the most coherent and the strongest show I've seen in a long time, actually. Um, and no, I'm not the least bit troubled by the orchestration. If anything, I think it's central to what the work is and, and what it does. Um, how it operates, what it's, what it's meant to do. And I think it's an incredibly powerful mode of addressing many things at once. Um, he also seems very driven to make the most powerful image possible. And I think that's very ambitious and very um, exciting to see using the romantic imagery of things like ships and the wide skies and the, um, you know, the familiar yet not familiar foregrounds. I think those are wonderful. I think that's a, a very tactile, very... Um, you know, image-oriented approach to things. So I don't feel it's deficient in that sense. And in terms of orchestrating, taking things from different places and putting them together or taking things from different times and different exposures, um, I think it's a wonderful um, octopus-like way of getting at different ideas and putting them in one place very quickly. Um, I, it's not good to necessarily to compare works of different types, but he did remind me, uh, the images reminded me very much of um, Thomas Pinchon's writing, where you have 
uh, times and periods and characters and situations all clashing, uh, but uh, you know sometimes to wonderful effect. They felt very contemporary, like they were dealing with specific issues through the orchestration. Okay, I felt that the uh, night scenes were the most spectacular. Those were the most dramatic. They drew me in and made me want to construct my own narratives to to to, to animate the particularly the the that strange disc form that uh, finds its uh, finds its way into different scenarios, particularly in the waterfall, it seemed uh, a very enigmatic uh, presence. Um, but it seemed, therefore, yeah, like a kind of uh, very, very low-octane surrealism in a way. It was a sort of, um, uh, because it's about juxtaposition and, and improbability. But um, um, I, I'm wanting to hear more from all three of you because um, I'm not really getting much from the show, to be honest. It seemed to be rather clever and academic to me, but uh, um, I'll just be the fly on the wall and listen to you learned folks. Uh, <laughs> t tell, me, tell me what I'm you know, sort of missing. He's a, young, he's a young artist. I think this is his third, well, actually his third show in New York, but, but he's, you know, sort of under, undersung, I think it's fair to say, right? He's, you know, he's new to, I think, everybody here but me. And he's familiar to me, basically, because Richard Moss got me on to him, who's a terrific photographer who has a show coming up with uh, Jack Scheinman, which I'm plugging in, fe in February. Um, and he's in a show that, they're both in a show that, I'm that I have up now in the Canary Islands. So if any of you are going to Canary Islands uh, to get some sun, go see the show. Um, but, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but uh, you know, I, there, I, I did a, a piece recently about Alex Prager, the show that's up at Liebman Maupin, um, for which I hunted down a couple of Vimeo uh, interviews that she'd done. She gives quite a good interview. She seems very sincere, she's very cool. And she said something in one of those interviews that really sort of stuck with me, and that is that, that when thinking about photography, she manipulates quite a bit, yeah? Um, it's, in fact, I think a lot of her work really is in post-production, as much production value as her work uh, has, I think the post-production is even more important. And she said something like um, that uh, basically, you know, people should find a, a, a different a different word to describe what she and her sort of age cohort are doing, by which I think she didn't actually say age cohort, but young photographers, people under 40, yeah? Because it's not photography anymore. It's something else. And I think that essentially speaks to the liberty with which I think someone like Thomas and uh, Alex Prager dig around with not just Photoshop, because Photoshop is a really kind of, you know, harebrained idea. They're far more sophisticated resources that they're mucking around with to basically change their idea of what images look like. So I think it, in, in a sense, there's a possibility of looking at in the glass half empty version um, of, of this work as work that is not speaking truth to materials, but in the glass half full version, David, it might very well be that there is the beginning of a, of a, of a conversation about truth to materials because the materials have changed. The materials aren't simply the stuff that's coming, the light that's coming through and registering on the film. That's actually not the material anymore. The material may be what happens when that image gets in the computer and the way you start mucking around with it. Yes. Well, then, but then, um, then I'd want something 
more, as it were. I'd want something more marvelous or something more intriguing. Um, at the moment, we're sort of just playing on the grave of empiricism, as it were, because it's it's the, the first look is, oh, these are straight black and white photographs, and then one discovers and then one thinks and one is disconcerted and one t is aged a little bit further. But sure, I mean, we, we I think, are all grasping the, 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 the new reality, which is that um, post-production, that Photoshop, etc., it has taken photography um, sort of away from science and back into printmaking. Um, and, and so it's less about the, the shoot and more about the print, which, is, which for art people I think is great. I love it. A, or to take a word out of Disney, Imagineering, really. I mean, that's kind of what it is, right? Let's uh, also just point out that a photograph is still not reality, right? So there's always, so it really, I think the artists like Thomas are really just sort of highlighting the fact that it's still kind of a, you know, a momentary fiction in, you know, and, it, and it's still staged and it's still just a moment of a much bigger story, um, you know, and, and one of the things, if, I mean, if I'm going to give any kind of critique to the show, I thought, for instance, the, the dark photograph with the tires, I thought was sort of a, a nice study, but I don't know whether I thought it was as complete a work as the others. You know, it felt like more of a test to be, uh, with dealing with the different blacks and different the different composition. That, that's the one work I was singling out as the most uh, redolent of um, a scene. I know, I'm of, trying to start fireworks right okay. now. Okay. <laughs> I think uh, maybe the next show will do that for us. Don't worry. Um, don't worry about the fireworks. Hold, then, hold them back. Yes. But then the other one was also the dark, uh, the other dark photo with the waterfall and that wheel. Yeah. And I never understood why there was a photograph of the wheel on the back of a what was it a truck or what whatever it was yeah go because that made no sense to me at all I mean it was sort of interesting because it kind of quoted the way the other in the other room there was a piece that quoted but it there was no and even when I asked the gallery they had no idea you know what I've seen that picture for about a year now and I've had exactly the same problem until I saw the picture of the waterfall and I had somebody next to me basically explaining it to me the uh, the contraption the fan, as it were, that was attached to that, you know, little tractor, um, uh, was made essentially to go in the waterfall to mimic a drawing. I don't remember by whom. Now, if you're in the audience, please remind me what the drawing is, Robert. In any event, it's an 18th century drawing. Yep. So he wanted to recreate basically that image, and. It's recreated in the image of the waterfall, and the other one, he's basically just sort of testing it out, literally testing it out, right? So I'm with you in thinking that that image and possibly the, the tires are experiments, which leads me to, again, say that I think where Thomas is at is, an ex is literally at an experimental um, stage of mucking around with these new devices with this new pseudo semi-form with this form that has yet to be yet to be named yeah well the mucking you know? around is what i like so well, he should muck around some more right. yeah okay let's christina you you enough mucking around for you or um... just just the right amount of mucking around i felt um again thinking of Pinchon. i mean i really felt there's a simmering anxiety to these works and i was thinking the first room uh, remind, made me think of sort of the anxiety of image making, the idea of trying to locate the central form, the protagonist in the image, as it were, and trying to create it and then to animate it. So I thought that was an interesting idea. And then I think the second room 
it's almost like a motor revving and then it extends further into anxiety about, I mean, there's, those images are so rich. I'm a little um, surprised that you find them a bit blah because I think, they're, I think the, the imagery is very powerful. A warship is a tremendously powerful image, especially in the context when it's not at war. I mean, it's always exciting to see a boat because it's something that has seen things other than what we're seeing now, and especially a warship. It's either participating in war or going to participate in war. Meanwhile, it's seen on this sunny day. So I think there's a lot of things going on there. Um, well, in I took terms pleasure of in the that. scale, in the sense of, I also took pleasure, in, not pleasure, but I was, I was sort of looking at them and thinking, wow, what a complete anachronism a battleship is. I mean, we really are, this is, uh, this is almost like looking at the armor in the Met. This is uh, uh, the warfare of, 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 a, of a bygone age that... Uh, Did anybody else have the association with like, uh, like luxury yacht? You know, the Dacus, the Roman, the Dacus the yacht, who was painted by Coons or like... The, the Venice. Did anyone, or, you know, or like, I meant like, did anyone else have that? Like, because, you know, nowadays it's like, you go to art fairs and there are all these like yachts lined up and they kind of have this kind of like, you know, landed ashore, you know, like these sort of big productions. And I have to say, I did kind of associate it just a little bit with that. Well, I mean, I... In the sense that the, the biggest auction house in China is in fact owned by the military. So uh, perhaps one day we will see the Chinese military arriving at the Venice Biennale by battleship to uh, uh, see what they fancy taking home with them. Yeah, um, good moment, I think, to bring in our audience. And, uh, and let me just say, yeah, I mean, I wasn't just picking a quarrel, but, and I did have some problems with Bankstead's work, but overall, I would say, yeah, it was, it had, it was curious and elegant. And those are good words to bear in mind when we think about one of the artists in part two. Um, whether or not curiosity and elegance carry across in that work as well. Um, audience, two shows to talk about, uh, Bangstead and Shulnik, and also some issues that seem to bounce between the two, about truth to materials, about the post-production, and about whether just mucking around with the materials is, is, is enough, and enough to convey mood. Yes, uh, and may, as before he speaks, let me just take a moment to say it's wonderful, gratifying always to see in the audience former participants here on, on the panel itself. I'd sort of uh, uh, shout out for uh, Deborah Garwood and Nora Griffin and Blake Gopnik and perhaps someone else who I can't see, but very flattering when people have been paid to come up and hear and talk and they come back in the future to listen, and Dennis Carden as well. Marvelous, at least that's, that's four I can see so far. Good, thank you. Um, just wondering if any of the panelists had any discomfort or have any discomfort in general with the tendency of the art world these days to, to embrace genres, media that aren't natural to it. I'm thinking of animation in, in the case mm -hmm. of Allison's show and also clay. I see a lot of both forms, in fact, and I worry a little bit that the art world is engaging with these things without knowing their history, without really knowing what's going on. You mentioned the NFB, the mm -hmm. National Film Board of Canada, right. and I remember doing some work on Kentridge and people from the NFB being up in arms that what the art world was praising is this amazingly original uh, technique, and because technique is always mentioned in these cases, is in fact for them utterly old hat, things right. they were doing, as you mentioned, in the 70s. And I'm a little worried about that with, with the Cholnik work as well, that we're entranced by the quality of her claimation, whereas people who really know the history of animation will say, 
that's old hat. And I'm worried about that with, the, with ceramic too. I see a lot of shows yeah. of artists using ceramic and wonder, do you know the history? Does this stuff count as ceramic or does it only count when it's brought into the art world where people are actually ignorant of those histories? Well, of course, the same is true with, with Paramount uh, sense with uh, photography. I mean, photography is a craft, and um, you know, it's that's the the almost sort of snobbish division between artists using the camera or using claymation and them out there just quote doing. You know, that's that's for me with Shulnik. I mean, I enjoyed it; it's lovely, whimsical, etc. But maybe two seconds of life and Pi would sort of blow it out the sky as far as technology is concerned. So that is that's always a problem and art i'd say well i think i think photography has the the closest parallel where um someone like thomas i don't you know i or jeff wall i think is a good example people don't really call him a photographer you know it, it, even though really he does photography at the end of the day but people call him a contemporary artist and he sort of falls into well certain artists fall into the photography category and you can't always put your finger on why that is you know, and I think it's a little bit of a sense of uh, the artists themselves, the way they sort of present it. And then I found this when I was doing a studio visit with a young artist recently, and 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 I found myself saying, you know what, if you wanted to show in a contemporary art context, I think this would probably work better. Or like, why are you thinking in a serial way? Like a photographer often thinks in more serial. And he, and I was like, I was like, what am, what am I doing? You know, and it's like you kind of catch yourself, but these are real things that people think about. Um, and I think you're right. There's an amnesia that's involved in the sort of the history. I mean, the NFB has such a rich history, especially when it comes to animation, um, from German animation to, you know, others. But, you know, that stuff is, I think it's partly just not accessible. People don't know where to look um, to understand that. The big difference between photography is you could make the argument, I think very sensibly, that Jeff Wall moved photography forward in very important ways. That photography actually was getting sleepy and he did something interesting and new, and that may be the case with other photographers as well. I don't know if you can make that argument with the work in ceramic or animation that's being done in the art world. And that's my concern. Jeff Wall knows the history of photography like the back of his hand, right? So he's really contributing to that discourse as well. But you I could think. about Ken Price, for example, who, who, you know, basically is a ceramicist and an artist. You know, I mean, look, yes, you, you, I think you put your finger on something that's, that's important and it's sort of out there in the art world where everyone seems to be experimenting, but they're basically just sort of like, but often they're not, you know. It's the Annie Albert syndrome. There's a lot of stitching going on. There's a lot of quilting going on. There's a lot of ceramic being thrown, you know, and, and a lot of it just basically, it just, it doesn't stick. Um, but in this case, Alison Shulnick, I mean, I didn't know this before I went to the show and saw the, saw the, the, the video, the animation, but she studied animation. Um, and I think it shows. I, you know, I'm, I haven't seen Life of Pi. I saw American Hustle. Um, I, look, I'd watch this. I, you know, I, they're not the same thing, but I, but I, I was tremendously entertained and I was moved. You know, I thought it was, a, I thought it was a great piece of, great, great piece of work. But yes, I, but please. I generally see your point. Yeah, I just don't think it sticks with Shulnik. Um, I'm really interested in the question. I just wanted to respond quickly. I'm usually, I was thinking myself as leaning a little bit towards the conservative angle on this, you know, really appreciating traditions and forms. But I have to say, I think um, that you know, whatever medium an artist chooses to use, if it works, it works. And I don't think that a lot of artists are interested in advancing necessarily. I think that might be a big difference. I don't think Alison Sholnick is trying to advance animation. I think she's very aware of the history, but I think she's 
being um, intentionally nostalgic um, with those old claymations. Um, there's a wonderful essay, very quickly, by Merlin James from years ago. I think he gave a keynote address about how painting, and he's, I love his work, I think he's a wonderful painter, should be seen as separate from so many other media in galleries. And it's a wonderful essay. The thing is, it's so well argued, but it still doesn't quite work. The fact is, we do see all of these things in galleries together. Um, we see photographs, we see installation, we see painters trying, you know, to do a pot, or we see, um, I know a painter who joined a dance group briefly. Wasn't the most successful venture, maybe, but we, people are trying things, and what works works, and what doesn't doesn't, but I'm not sure that I share the anxiety that traditions are being disrespected or Yes, not especially I, I would be worried for an appreciation of Kentridge if one has to go to the National Film Board to see whether he's moving it forward or not. I mean, if Kentridge is... Kentridge isn't moving animation forward, he's moving drawing forward, and, and he's moving looking at the world and thinking about history and thinking about nature forward. That's, and then the best artists use the, the simplest technology, the, the dumbest technology sometimes. So, I mean, the, the choice of materials and then, and then transcending them, that's, that's what we look to artists for, and then we can go to technicians for pyrotechnics. I mean, when you asked your question, my first thought was Amy Silman's animation, because I feel like that's sort of, to me, it's sort of like, okay, like, you know, sort of like that feels like an animation that doesn't need to happen, you know? Um, so, but I think Sholnik is a, I think pushes it in different directions, maybe not necessarily technically forward, but I think it's done, it does something really interesting. We'll have a separate argument another day about <laughs> Silman. Okay. Yes, there's some other hands going up around the sides, Kathy. Uh, uh, um, I have so many comments I'm going to try and focus. So I, I think for me there's a few um, issues, one being that we're evaluating works that are in Chelsea galleries and I think Lower East Side galleries as well. So we've already set a bar, a standard for each of the artists that are being shown. They're not obscure, they're not, you know, hidden creating artists. And I think that that does affect, when we look at work, how we evaluate it, because there's already been a stamp of validation. But that, the, the issue with the, um, with the medium, I agree with David, I think, and uh, feel, or maybe I don't agree, but what I feel is that there, there's a craft element here, just like a painter that can paint realism or abstract or whatever, there's a craft. And if the craft doesn't take the viewer to the place where there's more than the craft, then that's where the question for me, if the work holds or not, or if the exhibit holds or not. And, um, you know, if I can look at a work and say, wow, they stitched and they photoshopped and look how well they did it. But if it doesn't take me beyond that craft, then uh, that's all. Yeah, <laughs> that's what no, I, I think that's, that's a very useful. Yes. Uh, towards the back, if you would wait to the mic. Well, I just wanted to say very quickly, I'm enjoying this tremendously. This is the first time I've ever been to one of these panels, and it's very interesting. Um, I just think that the division between art and craft is tired. I mean, I'm very tired of even people thinking that there still should be one. I think um, an artist should be able to use whatever medium or materials that excite them. And it's very nice to see um, in Sholnik's work how excited she is with animation and color and painting. And, you know, there's a real vivacity there. So 
I applaud her breaking down of the barriers. Well, we'll, we'll see how happy you are when we start discussing Wade Guyton as a painter. So, what is it that I said about Bankstead, curiosity and elegance? So, those I think are terms to bear in mind with Wade Guyton and for me to decide whether how curious I am and how elegant it feels. Um, I felt certainly that the sculpture was a very curious object and um, possibly indeed an elegant one. With the paintings, I think I'm going to call them paintings, with the paintings, um, I felt a real throwback to what must have felt like the, what it might have felt like, all of us are too young, uh, to have seen the first minimalist works in the 1960s. Uh, to think, is this the energy of something classic moved to a new level, or is this a, a traduction of something that is now in the canon and somehow being mocked by this scale and this curious approach. With Guyton, there's an anxiety, it's the anxious objects, I think, in Harold Rosenberg's sense, that um, they really throw it all back at you standing there in the gallery. And I felt, okay, there's a tipping point here at which if I leave at this moment aesthetically unsatisfied, I'll spend the rest of the day thinking, if only you, instead of giving it 16 minutes, you'd given it 17 minutes, <laughs> the wool would have fell from your eyes. And beyond that tipping point, if I stayed for, say, 18 minutes and left, I'd think, you may as well have stayed for 18 seconds for what you got in 18 minutes. So that's my two cents work on <laughs> Wade Guyton. But I'm ready to be corrected and, and, and put in my place by you, Hrag. Tell me, what am I missing? I don't think you're missing much. I mean, uh, to be quite honest, I, you know, it was such an underwhelming show. I mean, that the sculpture is a recreation of the Carnegie Museum's coat check counter. I mean, it was like, I was like, who cares? I mean, it was, it, I didn't find the work on the wall, which I think are supposed to be printed according to your wall. I think there, there's like so you could so it would be it would be printed so that it would fit your wall perfectly. So it's not like you just bought the thing or something, which I guess is trying to play with this idea of like you know you sort of churn them out, you know, sort of this you know uh, this sort of Warholian thing or something. But I mean, I didn't find them interesting. I thought you know the whole idea he used the same files that he used in 2007 and he just blew them up. Yeah, with a new printer because his printer is wider. I mean, it was it was sort of like okay. I mean, goes up to eleven. Yeah, exactly. Like I was just like, I, I, who cares? I mean, you know, I mean, I didn't think they were interesting on the surface. I didn't think they were interesting. I mean, it was sort of a good idea, but as objects, they were lackluster. I mean, I don't know. Should I keep going on? I mean, well, did you did you, did you notice that like the the only real markings on them were essentially sort of like where the where the Linen gets stuck in the printer, like the way your paper gets stuck in the printer. So it See, sort of drags the fucking ink. It's pathetic. I was hoping they were going to be dot matrix. That would have been cool. Yes, a real throwback. <laughs> yes. Christina, what are we missing? 
Ooh, um, maybe ideas associated with previous works or potential brought up in previous works uh, that, that I thought, I think this might be my fault because I think I put his name forward as somebody interesting to discuss, but I have, I, I share the exact same impressions of the show. Um, it is so underwhelming is the, the right word. Um, and the fact, I was also very interested in the idea of, is this what people must have thought when they saw minimalist art in the sense that, you know, a lot of people said, well, there's just nothing there. And, uh, and I was, you know, I, I went through the same process or something similar, David, when I saw these, because I thought, well, there's really nothing to look at. I mean, I've tried, I've really tried. The surface marks are not interesting. The folds are not interesting. The fact that it's in a corner is not interesting. They're unbelievably light. When you think of someone like um, Sarah, you know, say pencil drawing, which has this incredible weight and depth and interest. I mean, these have, they look like they're about to float away. They seem so inconsequential. So I think the, the thing about Wade Guyton is if he is an interesting artist, and in the past, I think there's you know, a lot of potential there for, for something interesting. I think his project still depends on the work having some visual weight, some impact, and if they just seem inconsequential, then, then the project falls short. So, so no, I'm afraid I don't have much to add. It seems so, actually, our, our very criticisms, and this is, could be said to be a success for minimal or conceptual work if, if one's very criticisms and dismissals of something generate the possibilities of what it is that one's missed. Because um, actually, it did seem to me, well, of course, the surface increment was arbitrary, and we all know how and why it's generated. But nonetheless, it's not totally, um, it's reductive, but it's not minimalist. It's in that um, there is um, surface, some sort of surface, something going on. But one, I was about to use the word tension, but it's in fact, of course, completely free of tension, but nonetheless, incremental or incidental sort of drags happening. And, and so then, then one is left to think, okay, should I invest in that drag or um, should I, am I to look past that drag? So, But David, you know, I, I didn't feel like I missed anything. I have to say, I didn't feel like, oh, I need to keep staring at this I, at all. I felt like it was really, I mean, underwhelming is sort of a nice way of saying it. It was sort of like, okay, you know, it was like, okay, I could throw a party in here maybe. You know, that's what I was thinking. It made you appreciate the space. Yeah, yes. that's yes. it. Pretty much. I mean, in a, in a roundtable discussion at Art Critical on the work of Christopher Wall, I said, Christopher Wall makes you appreciate um, Robert Motherwell. And I, f I feel that Wade Guyton is making me appreciate Christopher Wall. I mean, I'm, I'm in, in, in the Wade Guyton show, I started remembering what I had seen and not liked, but was beginning to like in Christopher Wall. Uh, that, um, but is, is Christopher Wall nonetheless sort of to blame for Wade, Wade Guyton. Let me put that forward uh, as a possibility. Because look, Wade Guyton's getting a lot of play. He's getting, he's getting an incredibly beautiful space to work in. He's had a retrospective at the Whitney. Um, he's got auction records, I guess, to go with, with all this endeavor. Um, he's got Jerry Salt singing his praise. Um, who is to blame if, if we're all dissatisfied, Christian? <laughs> you know, I'm never, we're, in a certain sense, it's like the subprime mortgage crisis. We're all to blame. Um, I am, I, I'm 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm never really shocked by how much the art world invests, how, how much hankering they have for the effectless gesture. And I think Guyton is the guy today. You know, I haven't seen emptier pieces of, of work passing for art since, you know, Warhol's dollar bill signs. You know, it, I just think they're terrible. They're absolutely terrible. I think they're really very emblematic of the moment. Um, the kind of attention they get, the, the massively disproportionate attention they get, both financially and, and, and I think media-wise, I, I think sort of speaks for itself. Um, you know, I think looking back, we'll probably be remembered for having put up with this. <laughs> Or it will be the Rothko Chapel, and people say, it's amazing. People actually were in that space and looking at that work, and they didn't have that transcendental spiritual experience. What, 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 well, they were going to see that, animations that, that and things. That might be an interesting point. If it, didn't turn out, if it didn't turn out that these paintings in particular were made to be uh, installed upright, among other sort of uh, bits of nonsense associated with this work, um, that they were installed horizontally basically sort of gives you a sense of just how easy it is not only to sort of make the work but to install the work, appreciate the work. It's just, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a morality play to be perfectly frank with you. The fact that we just sort of put up with this and just let it run, you know? So is, is, is let's try to put aside the fact that we all hate it and look at it objectively and say, what could it be trying to do for us? I mean, if, if we really wanted to persuade ourselves that this was useful and significant, I, I what would we say? I have a quote from, from Holland Cotter, who, who said very nice things about it, which I think bears reading, um, that apparently he takes modernism, that Guyton takes modernism with its touchy-feely spiritual pretensions for a hard ride. And as always, he goes well beyond the one-line put-down. That's the praise. I just, I mean, I personally don't see any, I mean, I think this work is the epitome of mannerism, right? This is the guy I was sort of pointing to before. Um, uh, it's basically significantly referential, I would say not even of specific artists, of Sarah or of Kelly or of anybody else sort of doing, you know, um, uh, monochromatic work, um, but even, but just of the attitude, of the atmospherics of sort of modern, late modernism, you know, or even of certain postmodern stances. Um, but I don't get where the put on is, or where the the joke really sort of exists, or where the sarcasm sort of appears. I I don't see it. Maybe maybe you do, David. I think you love the word secretly. Does Holland? I I, I mean I, I I'd want to get Holland Carter on here and say, come on. Sir, please, are you telling us that he's offering us a needed critique and repast to Agnes Martin? What, 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 what harm has Agnes Martin done to you? I mean, really, I don't understand what he's saying in that quote. Uh, what I'd like to suggest, what I'd like to talk about is whether this work is within, it, whether this work is to be taken as formal work or whether it is a sort of conceptual conceit, whether it's a joke. Yes, please. Venture, um, because when I saw the show at the Whitney, I did think that some work succeeded formally, which is perhaps neither here nor there. I, you know, the question's open for me whether they're meant to do that. Seems to me they function 
um, as interesting objects when they do have a kind of formal impact, um, you know, namely shape or picture. Uh, you know, he's influenced, he says, from the, you know, the pictures generation. I think they do really interesting work. So there's different angles to approach it. Um, this show does not offer any angles. I mean, the show really is a it really is a big zip for me, but um, but his earlier works, I think there are some some elements that could be seen as interesting. Um, Jerry Saltz had a nice line. I don't, you know, I don't have a direct quote, but he uses the phrase, you know, "I know," <laughs> allowing us to see the the ghost in the machine. I think he, you know, he references that, and I do think that when there's a good Guyton painting or something that has a real impact. Um, one experiences it like an abstract, you know, with this incredible formal strength and this gesture and this mark, yet you know it's made by a printer, it doesn't hide that. The printer is boring to me, but the idea that the stroke is mediated, there's many painters that have done a mediated stroke, but I do think in Guyton's case, sometimes when he nails it, he nails it, and it's this very interesting moment where you don't know where the where the painting begins and ends, where is the artistic impulse within that stream, and then what is it one is experiencing, I think that can be a pretty interesting line of viewing, so to speak, um, when it works. But, you know, I don't think there's any, I almost feel like there's no excuse for this show. It's not even a, 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 an impressive failure because he's done things like this before. I don't, un I don't understand this show. It seems he, he's almost um, critiquing his own earlier work with this work because in his own earlier work, it, one was on that fence of thinking, I better stay because this could be interesting. It's not interesting, but it could be interesting. Or it's it it's it isn't just it, it isn't interesting me, but it should have interested me. So that sort of detained you to look and think and feel and experience, even even though one was grappling with negativity. And this show seems to push it further, saying, "Sorry, I almost intrigued you before. This won't." <laughs> I think if I were to think of like the most interesting aspect to, I mean, I sort of imagine this sort of like workshop, like almost he's working at a loom, pulling out these like fabrics from the loom, you know, and it's sort of like selling them by the yard or something. I mean, that's kind of as interesting as it gets for me, you know, um, you know, so that's kind of, oh, Right. Right. Exactly. But I mean, they're just not interesting objects. I don't think the concept is strong. I think repeating yourself in this kind of work is pretty monotonous. Um, you know. So I mean, I just think they're theoretically weak. I mean, I really do. I think as objects are not interesting. Theoretically, they're pretty weak. There was this interesting idea. Um, you know, I would venture to guess digital natives won't like them as much as, you know, digital immigrants, just because I feel like there isn't that sort of excitement with this kind of digital material, you know, and I, I think they're not that interesting, you know, and I think they might be interesting to someone going, oh, someone doesn't have to put a paintbrush on the, you know, in their paintings as opposed to prints or who cares, you know, it's so that, that, that's my instinct of, well, you know, and this printer technology sort of develops, these things may look sort of, I mean, I think he's already dealing with sort of like old-time printers, yeah? Um, yeah? They may look like Courier Archangels to us, which I think isn't, isn't great, you know? Uh, you know, Courier Archangels, this guy who basically sort of used to intervene old, um, old uh, video games. Um, and personally, when I look at those pieces now, they look very, very dated. Um, yeah, whereas... Rembrandt, using old paint, doesn't look dated. Well, he looks period without looking dated. So that's... Uh, Can I say something? 
Yeah, please. I think I think there's definitely this tendency that I've been thinking a lot about about this uh, art that's actually we're not labeling retro, and maybe we should. You know, because I think retro is about sort of creating this sort of experience of the near past and somehow making it feel new or, you know, in a sense of nostalgia. And I think people mistake that for other things, you know, whether it's a critique or whether they're mistaking it for some sort of historical precedent or something. And I think the, the urge for retro is really appealing. I mean, we all have it, you know, but it's not, it's not more than that. You know, this the, is the, the knee-jerk response to referentiality is to imagine that it's a critique, you know, immediately. Was it might just be a recycling? Where it might be a really crappy recycling. Um, uh, and what you call retro, I'm sort of calling mannerism. It's basically sort of the same thing. It's, um, and, I, and I think it's sort of all over. I mean, I, I think Blake uh, mentioned the way it might be all over in some kind of new version of Bauhaus exper experimentalism. Um, and I think he's, he's right about that. And I remember this sort of coming onto the scene with the Banami Biennial, where they actually sort of like talked about, and I'm trying to remember what they called it. They didn't call it ultra-modernism, because that would have been too smart. They called it um, personal modernism, something like that. So that everyone sort of got to apply their own sort of subjectivity to this thing, which is obviously sort of by definition a universal movement that's sort of totally sort of oxymoronic, right? But I think that's essentially what we're seeing. We're, we're seeing sort of a, a, a real development from that sort of breakout moment um, to, to now, because that's basically what's in the galleries. And particularly, I would say, or at least in my experience, all over the Lower East Side, even more than Chelsea, um, that's sort of what passes for the new, sort of by definition, right? Yeah, I, I want to feel, I feel like I want to put up a bit of a defense of mannerism, both historically and as a possibility for contemporary art. Um, you've, you've bashed on about bad mannerism, good Baroque all evening, uh, Christian. And I, 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 if you really, if I really gave you a choice between a Caravaggio and a Pontormo, would you really take the Caravaggio home? So, Apples and oranges. Right. I, I, I just think that mannerism was, firstly, meant a lot more than I totally agree with recycling. you. So, um, but, but also, I would also say that, um, sure, uh, it's, it's always going to feel refreshing to have authenticity when one is overwhelmed by uh, critique, referentiality, and, and recycling, and art about art. So you um, agree with but, So they are the easiest target. And yet, a lot of the greatest art is art about art, does make copious reference, does uh, distort uh, margin fractionally what we're kind of used to to give us something unexpected and new. So let's, let's just be very art historically cautious before uh, sort of writing off the impulse to move things forward by critiquing and playing with what comes from the past. We'd lose most of Picasso if we did. Oh, God forbid I should do that. But I, I mean, you talk about the best examples. I mean, I think, I think in some ways, you know, you should compare the weakest of both movements. And I think weak mannerist works are much worse than weak Baroque works. They tend to be really, really didactic. How many Spanish churches became... have you been in recently? <laughs> <laughs> I still think the mannerist works are worse. I mean, the really bad ones. I mean, you know, I think they become really schlocky and they become like really stiff, you know, in a way that at least Baroque has a little bit of something in it but well yeah mannerismo has, has suffered from the fact that the word is then 
applied just as the word academic. Um, you know, mannerism, academic, at the very best, are as good as any other movement, but the words then lend themselves to, we, use, we used to use the word academic, then we started using the word mannerist. I would just say... Uh, yeah, even, even, even back in the day, it wasn't exactly a compliment, so, you know. Well, okay, but I think for the sake of anger and pontormo, we should be more careful when we say academic or mannerist. That's all I'm saying. Uh, but also, I'm just I, I, the point I just made about um, you know the, the strong possibility for uh, richness and humor and imagination and moving it forward by stepping back is still is is always going to be there. And so that's probably what was going through Wade Guyton's mind that 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 he could be playing a, a game with some of the expectations that went with minimal art at its most cerebral and conceptual. And so, I mean, is he in a way kind of the, another side of, if one could put forward, if I would put forward an artist who is kind of the complete opposite of Wade Guyton, but in the same territory, it would be somebody like Rebecca Quaitman, who's very much takes us back to the, to the energy of that primary moment of uh, playing with concepts of conceptual art. And, um, but she's, she's lively, she's, she's a good egg, she, we like her, she's doing something good. But actually, if one really reduces it right down, there is a comparable energy, but negative as, or positive in, in, in the way that those two artists play with the minimal and the conceptual legacies.